welcome to Racing Heart, a podcast presented by the National Centre for Sports Cardiology. My name is Alex Clements, and today on the show, we've got a very special guest, former world record holder for the marathon, Derek Clayton. Andre Lagersh, Dr. Andre Lagersh, he would have heard across uh, some previous episodes of myself, sit down with Derek to talk about his early days of racing, how he got to be uh, in a place to, to break the world record and at a time when running was not an established sport. And then Andre goes through his, how his cardiology has evolved, how his heart's changed throughout his career. Before we get into the show, please note that the views expressed in this podcast are designed to be general in nature and should not be used to substitute for personal medical assessment. If you do have any symptoms or concerns, please consult your doctor. Welcome, Andre and Derek, to the podcast. Andre, to get things started, I might just get you to run us, to give us a little bit of an intro to Derek and uh, some of the key highlights of his amazing career. Yeah, well, okay. So, so our special guest today is is would be one of uh, my absolute sporting heroes, um, Derek Clayton, who um, set the world record for the marathon in in 1969 uh, and held it for 12 years until until another australian rob de costella um, broke the marathon world record and in some ways you know at least for a while the some of the marathon greats were part of the australian sporting vernacular the rob de costella and steve monaghetti but they they were preceded by by in probably in every respect uh, the greatest marathon runner of all time because in 1969 did what would be seen today as the sub two hour equivalent which was to run under 210 at the time and it was more than a decade before anyone again got close to that so it's an absolute pleasure to and and i suppose the other part of that now is that at, at the age of 77 um, you know, Derek Clayton is still the absolute picture of health and, and uh, fitness uh, and, and very much a product of what a lifetime of exercise can, can do for quality of life. So. Well, thank you very much and very happy to be here, actually. And I'm only, when I think back all those years ago, I'm just glad that I'm still here to, to be able to talk about it. It seems that long ago. Derek, can you... <coughs> set the scene a little bit what what your life was like in 1967 what the running world was like what you were up to well it's a lot different from what it is now very very much different i mean i was a kid you know with a dream i i just i always loved sports i wanted to be good at a particular sport i was mad keen on soccer back in my early days living in england and ireland and uh, but I wasn't good enough, didn't make the grade, and so I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I thought, well, I was always a f- not a bad runner training for soccer, but I didn't think I, I wasn't sure if I had any ability or not. So I decided I'll go down. A friend of mine said, why don't you come down to the local running club? So I went down to a local running club and I saw the coach there, and he said, have you ever ran? I said, not really. I only ran trained for soccer. He said, have you ever run a mile? I said, no, never run a mile race. I thought, that's what you mean. He said, okay. Um, I like you to warm up and I want you to run four laps around this track which is one mile and see how you do so I said okay so off I went ran four laps and finished and he said gee whiz <laughs> that was 4.56 you broke five minutes for the mile and I didn't know that meant a great deal he said you've got talent well once I heard that I thought okay when do I join the when do I join the running club and that's how it all started so it started from there but um, 
And then, and then I came to Australia in 1963. I'd just been running for a year and a half. Did fairly well in such a short time. And I joined a local club here. I didn't know anybody in Australia, in Melbourne. So it was my way of you know, meeting some new friends. And so I joined a local club here. And um, after about, oh, it'd be nine months, the coach said, look, we're all going to go and run a marathon. I said, a marathon? I can't run a marathon. I said, no, no, you're not going to run a marathon. You're going to start in the marathon, but you'll run 10 miles. There'll be about 10, 12 of us, and then you can pull out after 10 miles. And I said, okay, that sounds all right. I, I think I'd, I'm not sure if I'd ever run 10 miles before, to be honest. Anyway, off we went, and I ran the 10 miles. We got to 10 miles, and this coach was there, and this car, he had a big he had a van, actually, and a few of the guys decided to stop and jump in the van and said, Derry, come on. I said, no, I think I'll go a little bit further. Anyway, I got to 15 miles and then I got to 20 miles and I thought, I'm going to finish this because I never, ever want to run another marathon again, ever. So I finished and um, I ran just over, I think I ran three hours and three seconds and I was bitterly disappointed because I wanted to break three hours and I didn't do it, but maybe as well I didn't because if I had broken three hours, I definitely would never run another marathon. And after finishing that, I thought, I'm going to run, I'm going to run a marathon and break three hours. Sorry about that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> These things do happen. Um, yeah, so um, I, I had dreams of being a good 1,500 metre runner, 5,000, 10,000. That's what I really, you know, I was aiming for. And... Um, well, but it might have been a year or two years later, there was a, a marathon at Preston, the Australian Championships. I said, oh, I think I'll enter that, see if I can break three hours. And um, I did a bit of training for it. I'd, I'm not sure, may have run a 20, couple of 20 milers and things. So, so I ran this race and won the darn thing in a new Australian record. Well, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. And that's how it all started. What, what was the record at that time? Two hours and 22 minutes. Yeah. So you just, just knocked a cheeky 40 minutes off your time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In two years. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but I had been doing a lot more training because the first marathon, I'd, I'd been on the boat for f- four weeks, you know, on the ship, and I hadn't really done that much. I hadn't, certainly hadn't trained for a marathon. Um, but I think it showed a little bit of mental stupidity <laughs> that I think you need to run a hard marathon. And, um, yeah, so... Then I, I was still concentrating on the 1,500 and 5,000, but I didn't really have the speed to be a real top athlete at that all those distances. And, um, you know, so and then I stuck to the marathon, then got invited to Japan and went there. I uh, was hoping I'd get, you know, put in a good performance and break two hours 22. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> I did more than break 222. I broke 210. Uh, so it happened all very quickly. And... Um, I was kind of very surprised that the way it happened, actually. So, what was what was life like? Because if you were running sub two ten now, fifty years later, you would be probably at the moment still Australia's best marathon runner, mm-hmm. and and you would be a full time athlete, and you would be on a salary probably from from sponsors and from the uh from the government probably on on a on a scholarship and and you'd probably be earning quite a good living back then were you could you make enough to get by on running i wasn't making anything i don't think anybody was 
Some of the track athletes were going off to Europe; they were paying money. But marathon, no, definitely not. I had trouble getting getting my airfare. I mean, it was that you know, it was just. Um, as a matter of fact, I was. Um, I remember quite distinctly. I ran when I, uh, I ran a race in Turkey, which I won. And then the ten days later, I won. I ran a, a new world record on the marathon in Belgium. And because I, it was rumoured that I'd collected some money, which I had collected money, by the way, um, to put towards my airfares, which I had to pay, and uh, that was found out by the authorities in Australia, and um, I was I was banned forthwith until a satisfactory explanation was put forward. So I was in England ready to have a big race there, and all I did was making phone calls back and forth trying to play how innocent I was and that the money I did receive was in fact only money I put in towards my airfare and I wasn't making any money so it was strictly amateur back in those days very very strictly amateur so what was the week like because you were doing you were working a job as well as oh back in yeah I was I was even going to night school at one point it was pretty tough because I was up at five o'clock every morning going for a you know an hour's run and then I had to be at work at 8.45. And then I didn't stop work until 5 o'clock. And then I had to be at night school at 7 o'clock. Uh, you know, so life was, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, but when you've got a passion for something, and I was had a determination, um, and order to succeed, you know, it was just like, I just had to do it. And I didn't think of all these negatives that, uh, yeah, it just, it never entered my mind that I was doing it tough. It was just one of those things that you have to do to be successful. And just for just for the listeners, like what what sort of uh, I think I was saying to you earlier that I had a, a diary of your of of your running schedule, and it it was breathtaking in terms of how many miles you did and how hard you trained. Can you give a bit of a summary or a bit of an idea as to the, the miles you were running and how many times you'd train a day? Well, it's breathtaking to me now when I look back on it, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, look, there was very few... Um, that, 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 how will I put it? There was nothing written back in those days about marathon training. Um, there was no leads I could get. There was uh, no coaches that really knew a great deal about marathon running back then. It was all hit and miss a bit. And so I just thought, well, if I'm going to run a marathon, I've got to do a lot of miles. I've got to make it as easy as possible. It's like if you're going to do a four-minute mile, you've got to learn how to run 60 seconds for four laps. And I just figured if I'm going to be a, you know, a top marathon runner, I had to learn how to run, say, five-minute miles consecutively. So I went out and sort of that's what I did. I just went out and ran hard. I couldn't see the sense in running 10, 20 miles easy. Um, you know, I had to do, had to run at a pace where I thought I was going to have to race that. Now, I didn't do that all the time, obviously. I would have, I would have killed myself. So for a while, I was I, I probably needed to do 150 miles a week, not k's a week back in those days, obviously, but it was 150 miles a week. And then I put it up to over 200 to see what would happen, and then I trained three times a day to see what would happen. So I was experimenting, then figured that the three times a day was overdoing it. I was wasn't recovering in time. And then the 200 miles a week plus in pretty poor shoes. Now this is a very important point because I used to run in Dunlop volleys, the old tennis shoes. Back in those early days, there was no real running shoes per se, and I used to run in the very early days of Tiger shoes, which had, you know, there's just no no protection there at all. So when I was doing my 200 plus a week, 
I was running in shoes that weren't really capable to do that sort of mileage. And so it was knocking my body around. So I started having a few injury problems. And um, yeah, during my athletic career, I think I had about 12 operations. So a lot of operations because I knocked myself around pretty badly. So uh, 300 miles a week, I figured it was a little bit too much. And then I went back to 100 miles a week. Uh, I find that wasn't quite enough. So 100, uh, for me personally, 100, 150 miles a week, uh, running a marathon every Saturday, 10 weeks, eight weeks before a major marathon. Um, I figured that was uh, ideal for me. Okay, so 100, 150 miles and up to 300. So we're yeah. talking in, in modern parlance sort of 300 to to. 450 kilometers a week so running a marathon a day in wafer thin shoes so like so i guess the obvious question is would derek clayton in 2020 in a pair of these super duper nike shoes what what would derek clayton run today well i've heard two or three seconds per k thrown around i've heard up to you know five seven eight um uh, thrown around um, seconds thrown around look it's hard to know but definitely a lot quicker yeah. no question about that I think I'd be looking at at least three minutes faster possibly more because the shoes I wore were pretty awful I like to think that it could be even five minutes faster because there was just no impact but just you were running marathons you were racing in the downland volleys as well and no, no I went the first race, yeah, I did initially, yes. But when I went to Japan and ran the first world record, I took my Dunlop volleys with me. But the Tiger, Asics Tiger guy was there, and he said, you wear our shoes. And he had this this wafer, had the little Tiger Cubs, one of the first. And it had a soft kangaroo upper, which I thought was fabulous. And I thought, gee, what a great pair of shoes these are. But the sole was wafer thin. And I've still got them at home, actually. It's amazing. I lost them. And uh, even though I would probably would have thrown them out, and I'm very glad that I kept them. I've been told now they're worth a lot of money by some of these people that click memorabilia. I'll never sell them, obviously. But they're so wafer thin. And so I thought, well, these look a lot lighter than the Dunlop volleys. So I'll put them on. So I wore a brand new pair of shoes and ran 209.36. The mm. only time I ever wore them. Because when I ran that record, Adidas and these shoe companies were all over me to wear their shoes. And that's when technology started to take um, a few leaps and bounds. Was Nike around? Um, Nike was around back in those days. Um, they didn't approach me, no. No. Don't quite know why. Mm. Yeah. I, did, I don't think Nike were around. They weren't as big back then, actually. Uh, Adidas and Puma and Tiger were the three biggies. They're the three big companies. So I guess the question comes up then, because you've painted the picture of someone who experimented and, and in some ways you're inferring that made a lot of mistakes and got a lot of things wrong. Whereas today people are very carefully micromanaged and the programs and watch the heart rate and, and, and do testing and et cetera, et cetera, yet no one's coming close at the moment. No one in Australia is coming close to the times you ran in 1969. So should they be copying what you did way back then? Yeah, it was hard to say. I just needed a lot of hard work. So I was, for a marathon, I'm you know, pretty big. I know I'm skinny, but I'm pretty, as you know, when I was running marathons, everyone around me, the competitors were all small and very lightly built. So I always figured that I had to do a lot more work, 
like if Steve Monaghetti, you know, to go back to, to, to quote Steve, he's very lightly built compared with me. Well, I, I think if Steve did the training that I did, uh, he'd be breaking down a lot more than I ever broke down. I don't think he, he, he could absorb that. I don't think it's totally necessary that athletes, marathoners do what I did. It just, I figured I had to do that because that was my, my physiology, as it were. Um, whether I'm right or wrong on that, I, I don't really know. But, you know, if I had, I had massages, I never had a massage, I, I hardly ha ever had a massage. Um, you know, medical science back then when it's in its infancy. So if I got an injury, um, I remember I had to go from where I lived in Armadale at that time, I had to go across to, um, uh, across to Essendon because that's where this and doctor used to be and I, I, I'd go there, um, so, you know, after training, so that was very inconvenient. Um, so a lot of things have changed. A host of things have changed. I like to think now if I lived in this era, uh, going back to the shoes and... So in this block leading up to Japan, let's take a six-month lens on it. What, what did that look like? Um, well, the six-month lens in Japan, I was still training for track, and then I, I, I think I ran a, um, what did I do now? I can't remember. I ran a race, I won a race that got me an invitation to Japan, and I wasn't given a track suit. All I was given a, a, a singlet and a pair of shorts. These days I'd be given a lot more than that. And, um, oh, and I had to take a manager with me. Now, what a waste of money that was, wasn't it? So off I go with this manager. I didn't know anything about marathon running. And off we go to Japan. And, of course, marathon running has always been big in Japan. Very, very big. So when I get there, the press are everywhere, and they didn't know much about me, obviously. But, but there's, you know, there would have been 10... Well, the, the race itself, there wouldn't have been more than probably 40 in it. It was kind of special invitations. So we were all good athletes. So it was a very good chance that I would finished last very good chance and, I, and so I just went there hoping I could make the best time it was I think the best then was 218 I'd run which is a new Australian I ran one Australian record 223 then ran another one at 218 so off I go to Japan hoping I heck I could break 218 and uh, race goes off starting gun goes off and streets are lined with thousands of people which I've I found unbelievable. And um, started in a soccer stadium. And all these, must have been five, 6,000 people just in the, in the stadium to watch it start. And so I'm, all the adrenaline's pumping. So I get off and off I go. And all the, 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 the distances were in kilometres. Well, I, I was, I'm a mileage man, not a kilometre man. And um, even though I had an idea, what was, I had a fair idea. And then the 5K comes up and it's just under 50, over 15 minutes. Then the next K comes up and it's just over 30 minutes. I'm going, Derek, you're crazy. You can't keep this up. And anyway, I didn't feel too bad. So I'm in a group of about 20 or 30. And then it's down to 20. And then it's down to 12. And then it's down to 15. And then it's down to 10. So people are dropping off and I'm still up there. And next minute there's only um, there's three of us. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? I shouldn't be doing this. I'm, I'm going to burn out. And we get that was before the turn. And they end up with uh, at the turn with the Japanese, the Japanese favourite. And so they do the turn, there's two of us coming back. And of course, all the Japanese are waving all these Japanese flags, waiting for him to take off. And I was waiting for him to take off as well, to be quite honest. And um, anyway, I'm running along and 
Uh, I'll never forget this. I probably shouldn't say this, but going back, this this brings back memories because we come up to a drink station and they're probably, oh, past the halfway mark. So we're probably be 25k, close to 30k, and it's a drink station. Well, back then they didn't have all these fancy, fancy drink containers. We had these plastic cups full of water. And so I was running, he was on the, on the side where the drink station was, and I was on next to him, but on the opposite side, if you know what I mean. It wasn't convenient for me to get across to get a drink because I would have had to chop my stride. And I was getting tired, to be quite blunt. And so to, to change stride was, I didn't want to do it. And so he went and grabbed the cup and he gave the cup to me. Oh. Yeah, um, which I was surprised about. And and so the cup, I'm running along and the, all the water's pouring out of the cup, you see? And the wall out of it, so it was almost all gone. So I, I drank it, drank, but there was not much left in it. And next minute, I just threw the cup away. And I don't think he understood that the cup was empty. You know, it was kind of an insult, you know. And anyway, I, he looked at me and he looked a bit, he looked a bit astonished. And I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to make a break. <laughs> so I took off. <laughs> I never saw him again. And next minute I'm leading this darn race, which I never thought I wouldn't have. I never dreamt of winning this race. So I'm, people are everywhere, and I go into the stadium, which is now full of people. Anyway, I cross the line. I can't believe what's happened. It's like a dream. And then some I had an interpreter there, and he comes up, and he's waving. He's, he's talking in Japanese. Everyone's excited. I didn't understand what anyone was saying. I've got no idea what time I'd run. Not the faintest idea. And all of a sudden this guy comes up with a piece of paper, and it had written on it. 208 and I said ah oh, he's left the one off it's 218 so it took a while everyone it took a, it would have taken three or four minutes after I'd finished to sink in that I'd run 209 and it was a world record and after that I was wished away in, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a special taxi special car with these police escort outriders whisking me off to all to the various TV and radio stations for, for, for an interview it's just, a, just an amazing story I'll never forget it. Yeah. So you were running never this whole it. race just off? On adrenaline. And you had a time at each kilometre or did you have Yeah, a- I did. I knew it was quick, but I couldn't work out that it was going to be that quick. And after a while, after 20Ks, I knew it was pretty quick. Um, but I, I never thought of it at the time. It just didn't – it was all surreal. Yeah. Honestly, it didn't sink in. Um, I was just – carried away with all the crowds of people and the, you had this big bus full of the, with the TV cameras on it because it's all being televised. I got caught up in the euphoria of it and I just wasn't, I don't think I was thinking straight. If it had been thinking straight, I wouldn't have gone off with the leaders. I would have held back and ran at a pace that I thought I could keep for, for, for that distance. So it was just, just, it was crazy. But... You know, we'll run a, this best time and, yeah. And also taken nine minutes off your PV. I was. I know, people couldn't believe it. It's a, it's a great story as well because now we're we often almost governed by watt meters in cycling or by, you know, GPS watches and everyone goes in thinking I'm going to run 322 pace, say, or whatever. Yeah. And, and you don't go within two seconds faster or no. had you been governed by a watch, you would have gone 10 minutes have, slower. We didn't have those watches back yeah. then. Yeah, didn't, exactly. didn't have, I never ran with a watch in my life. <laughs> didn't have them. I mean, it's just, 
changed so much in 50 years it's just it has changed so so much but the biggest thing for me is shoes when you think back to the shoes i wore, no wonder about a knee replacement i've got back i've got back issues um i look um the shoes today are just absolutely fabulous i love to run in those shoes i'd love to have seen what i could have done in those shoes yeah do you have a view just quickly on the on the controversy at the moment about whether the shoes should be banned in terms of the performance advantage that they offer? Look, I think all sports have got to be controlled. Um, you know, you've got tennis. They can't play with any tennis ball. They're all controlled. I'm a bit concerned about golf. That's getting out of hand right now because these guys are hitting the ball so much further and golf balls are a lot more you know, the, the, the travel further. I think golf's got to be controlled. And I think running will have to be the same way. Next minute you'll be running with springs in them. So I think, yes, I think I think this, these new Nike shoes coming out, I think they're going to have to be, um, I think this, I think they're going to have to be restrictions put on them. Because where's it, where it all going to end? It's got to end somewhere. And it seems particularly a shame in running potentially because it's almost the purest. You know, it's, there's, there's not too much that you can change. The drafting doesn't really have that big an effect and no, it's very pure. The, the, it is pure, and except for the shoes. Yeah, and and no. I disagree what's happened. I mean, I was a bit upset. I mean, the two-hour marathon, I was hoping that would be done under racing conditions. I think this now takes away a lot from the guy that doesn't, does break two hours the fact that it's been set up like this run in a foreign country had a v you know v formation of other athletes um had a you know laser line across we had to keep it to this laser around to break two hours uh had these special shoes which only last for a marathon then they're fairly useless after that yeah look i've got a bit of a problem with it i have a problem with it and he, I can't blame the athlete that did it. Was a great athlete. He's a you know tremendous athlete, and he was probably paid a million dollars for it. So I can't blame him for doing it. I just blame the way that it was all set up like that. A bit different to Fukuoka in 1969, it seems. A lot different. And the other change which I'm having a problem with is all races these days, whether it be marathon running, road running, or track running, all pacemakers pacemakers all over the place and I, I i'm absolutely against pacemaking i like to race and you don't race now you just hang on to the pacemakers yeah. um you know and that's not that's not racing for, to, to me and that's why a lot of the aussie athletes i you know they go over there and do all the qualifying times because they've been dragged through to these qualifying time qualifying times and yet when they go to the world championships on the olympic games where there's no pacing they're a bit lost because they have to race so I'm I'm having a hard time coming to coming to grips with that. Maybe I'm a little bit too old-fashioned. Do you think that plays though into your training? It was all about racing. Mm. You, you weren't training to a watch because that is throughout a, an athlete's life now. Is data tech it is, yeah. monitoring the scheduling and the specificity of it? Whereas you were taking oh. the complete opposite approach. Yeah, but that that inner motive, that inner drive that an athlete gains from having that carrot at the end of the line, that winning mentality. In some ways, it could have been negative. I know a lot of people would say that I overdid it. I trained too hard. I, that's that's well known out there. And um, look, that could be a possibility. I think I probably did overdo it. And I think there's a high possibility that I didn't need to train as hard as what I did 
and maybe I could have run faster if I hadn't have trained as hard as what I did. There's always that way of looking at it. Um, you know, I was, I did get tired and I had a, a few injury problems and quite often I ran with minor injuries, shall I say. Um, yeah, I think with, I think the way it's going is better. I was in no man's land. You know, I was just, I didn't even know what I was doing half the time. I was just pushing, pushing. And I had this time frame because I didn't really enjoy doing what I did. And this might sound kind of, kind of funny. I mean, how could you enjoy going out and running 200 miles a week? You'd have to be a bit mental to enjoy doing that. And quite frankly, I didn't enjoy it. It was a means to, I, I, look, I didn't enjoy studying either, but it was a means of an end. You know, you, 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 you got to do it. You know, I, I felt I had to do it. And because I disliked it to a large degree, it made me more of a determined competitor because I wanted to win. Otherwise, what's the point in doing all this damn hard work if you're not going to have some success? So there was a lot of that in it as well. Andre, might I just touch on the cardiology? So Derek mentioned before he wanted to be a 1,500-meter runner. Why didn't that work? But the marathon was so successful. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we can chat a bit about what sort of role sports science has had in, in your career, um, Derek. But we, uh, part of the reason Derek's here is that we did some testing today. And, and the results that we see seem to be similar to those that were described by Dave Costell in the past. And often your physiology is put up as a textbook example of, of someone who had a oxygen capacity a vo2 max which was very high but not not the highest not super elite but that you could run the marathon very close to your maximum whereas some of the other examples like alberto salazar who had a, a, a considerably higher vo2 max but could only run at sort of 75 percent of that so the actual um you know during the marathon it was it was very similar and it was interesting today because during your VO2 max test, your you were sort of um, your maximum was very close to your anaerobic threshold or your ventilatory threshold. And coming back to your question, Alex, that that picture that we see is the pure sort of diesel engine of humans. You know, the the ability to to go all day at a high level, but not having that sort of extra super quick gear that you need as a 1500 meter or 5000 so if we were to look at just your vo2 max and i was to be asked what sort of athlete is attached to that i would have said a superb endurance athlete rather than a middle distance or a and similarly in in with your cycling i suspect that you are more the the sort of domestique or time trialist rather than the person who had that you know extra gear to just really sprint off the front or to you know to change the pace dramatically and it's interesting that we see that physiology through testing Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that'd be right. That's why I didn't make it as a 1500 meter on I just didn't have that basic speed. You know, I could go quite quickly, all right, but I just couldn't go to that next level. Yeah. And the Simmons bike, Simmons, when I'm riding a bike now, I used to race bikes for five or six years and I could, you know, climb very well. I was always a pretty good climber and I could go at a 
pretty fast rate for a long period of time. But the guys used to spend bike racing, it's shocking. All they do is sit on you, sit, 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 because they're doing 30% less work than me at the front. And of course, you know, they're about 400 meters to go, bang, they're, they're gone. Mm. Yeah. And the, the opposite is also true a bit, is that if you have that extra capacity to be more of a middle distance, then um, that almost becomes a disadvantage in, in endurance because if you dip into that area where you're building up lactic acid and things, it, it really impairs your performance over the long run. So it was the perfect sort of um, setup. Did you, did you have much testing through your career or guidance? No, or? no not really. No, no, the very little. I think it was a couple of times we were tested. I was tested before one of the Olympic Games. Um, I was tested for that. I think um, other long-distance runners in the team were as well. And then um, David Costell, as you mentioned, uh, back in Muncie University in the States, um, he did a couple of tests on me going back, um, yeah, going back 40, 50 years ago, yeah. So that's data now. That's now we're now trying to compare against. That'll be interesting. Mm. And I suppose that now the question comes up, and we were talking about this earlier about whether whether you can do too much exercise. There's a lot of um, uh, controversy in the in the in the heart specialty field as to whether people can do so much exercise that actually causes heart problems. To me, and looking at your testing today and, and hearing about everything that's gone on and you haven't had any heart problems, running 200, 300 miles a week, a lot of it very hard, you couldn't get someone who's pushed the boundaries more. Um, do, do you, I mean, to me, you would be the perfect proof that you can, you can exercise really hard and be extremely healthy at the age of 77. Yeah, look, you're right. So far, so good. But um, you know, I push it still. Uh, some, I'm, I'm starting to even question at 77, should I be pushing it as hard as what I am? Um, look, I enjoy doing it. Um, I feel that I'm not hurting myself. I'm not overdoing it. Um, I could be, but I don't feel that I am. Um, and so I'll just keep pushing it and. Because I enjoy pushing it. I mean, I'm not a person who goes out and rides a bike slowly. That, that bores me. Uh, I, I want to have a go at it. I and mean, I don't go flat stick from the very word go, um, but I like, to, I like to be a bit competitive. And there's a group of guys that I ride with. We come back fairly solidly, and we do rollovers, and I, I like to make sure I participate in that. And so when I finish the ride, I've, I feel as if it's been a, a pretty hard workout. Now, whether I'm doing myself any harm or not, only the future will, will tell. I just don't think that I am, and I'm in, as you say, I'm enjoying good health. And whether that's because I've, I've been dealt a good deck of cards at birth, I, I don't really know. But uh, I intend to keep intend to keep doing what I'm doing because I enjoy it. The other thing that I'd like to hear a little bit about was the 1968 uh, Olympics in um, in Mexico City because that was before my time, but it just a number of extraordinary things happened there, both because of the altitude. And, and really, no, that was me. And then a lot of political things, and it was also the, the um, Peter Norman with the black power. Yeah, yeah. If we, start, if we start with your part of everything, which was the marathon, and I think you came seventh in 227, mm. that must have been an extraordinary marathon because... 227 
uh, you know, in big inverted commas, is slow by, by the times that you've been talking about. So altitude must have played a massive role. Did what was there sports science or anything specific that that did you train at altitude for that? Were you aware of of how different it would be? I was aware because of the, quite a bit of uh, publicity about it, especially when Mexico got nominated the the Olympics, and I knew there was going to be a problem. Uh, I didn't do any altitude training at all, and the reason being is I wanted the comfort of my own home. I didn't want to be in a in a, what I would call a foreign environment. I uh, wanted the food that I enjoy eating. And, um, yeah, so I, the idea of going up to Falls Creek or going anywhere else for altitude, that didn't appeal to me. What I would have liked to have done, and in hindsight, uh, I think it would have been a big difference, is stayed in Melbourne up until the very last minute and gone to Mexico two or three days before my event. That's what I'd like to have done. But no. I had to go there. I was there six weeks in in a in a in a an environment that wasn't conducive to running a good race because you're rooming with five or six other guys, and not, well, the guys were good guys, by the way, and we didn't have air conditioning. The windows were wide open, and what happens is at the Olympics, because the marathon is the last event, all the people are finishing their events, so it's party time. So everyone's those have finished are going out having a good time as well they should but there's me trying to concentrate on my event which is the last event uh, and I've been there for six weeks it wasn't a good preparation and what happened was that I find that I was running better when I first got to Mexico and the longer I stayed there the more tired I became I started to feel lethargic and that wasn't like me and I find out when I went for a run and the pressure would go on. Um, I'd get tight and my legs would go to jelly or become uh, like lead very, very quickly. So coming up to the marathon, I can't say I was overly confident. Overly confident. But, um, yeah, um, the, the fact that it was won by an Ethiopian in 218, I think it was, proves just the effects of, of the altitude. Everyone was affected by the altitude. And just unfortunate, and it was warm as well, and it was and both my marathons in the Olympics, both in Mexico and Munich, were started around about one o'clock in the afternoon, right. which is a no-no. Yeah. Never do that now. Now it would be six o'clock in the morning, yeah. more, a lot more sensible time. And and it was also when the the famous incident when Ron Clark sort of collapsed at the end yeah. of the ten thousand, and his yeah. doctor subsequently said that he thought he thought he might die. Yeah. Um, did did that sort of come across in the athlete village? Were people getting scared of the altitude? No, or? no, that didn't come across. Yeah. I think I might have been a bit of an exaggeration. I read I read that myself, but not at the time. Um, I was there. I was very. I trained a lot with Ron, mm-hmm. and I was very close to mates with Ron. And I saw him after the race. Um, I never thought for one second he was going to die. Um, there obviously was a problem with him running at altitude at that pace, just like there was. You know, for a lot of us, um, yeah. I, I just thought that Mexico was a bad place to have um, to have the Olympics for for endurance athletes. Pure bad luck. And can I ask, because it is one of my favourite sporting stories about the Peter Norman incident and and oh, uh, yeah. Tommy Smith and Johnny Carlos yeah, yeah. and the and the sort of Black Power salute. Yeah. Perhaps maybe for listeners, I mean, people. 
probably should be aware, but this was a time when when uh, um, race equality was being being pushed and athletes for human rights was a badge that people were wearing mm-hmm. and and johnny carlos and tommy smith um made a statement by raising black gloves in 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 sort of a symbol of of um or a statement of of athletic equality and peter norman was asked whether he was happy to be sort of part of it or else they wouldn't do it and he said i stand with you um a really kind of beautiful uh, australian story but also an incredible athletic achievement because i think his time in the 200 meters um is is close to or is still yeah, the no, fastest ever run by an australian yeah. over 200 meters yeah he was a great athlete peter and he's no longer with us mm. sadly and um, not, but you know, it was interesting at the time. I was there and I saw it because I was in the team, obviously, and I saw what was happening. But when it all happened, it was kind of, yes, it's not bad to do that. I went along with it, but no big deal. But then again, the longer afterwards, it just sort of gathered its own its own energy. Yeah. And I think Peter Norman became better known because of that than his athletic achievements, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, and they came out, both Smith and Carlos came out for his, for his funeral. Yeah. which I also went to. So it's just one of those things that sort of got its own energy. Um, it's funny how things, same as Ron Clark when he fell and John Landy picked him up. Well, that sort of got its own energy. And, it's, you know, that's kind of interesting. But at the time, I, all of us watching it, we never thought much of it. We thought, oh, sort of good on those guys to be able to protest. Whether you agree with it or not, I don't know. But it certainly, certainly didn't seem that big a deal at the time. But a week later, it became bigger and bigger and bigger every day that went by. From a cardiology perspective, that altitude, the time, the things, the symptoms that Derek was describing, what's happening there? Well, it's, it's definitely more difficult at altitude. Um, interestingly, for endurance athletes, much more difficult, whereas one of the arguments with Peter Norman's time is that for sprint, for sprinters, it's actually an advantage because the air's thinner and there's less resistance. Um, and when you're a sprinter, oxygen consumption and things is not not important at all to performance. Whereas in, in endurance events, um, the amount of oxygen that you can get to your muscles determines determines performance to a large extent. And at altitude, there's just less oxygen in the air, and so more it takes a lot more work from the cardiovascular system to get that to get that oxygen to the muscles. So consistently, um, you know, people's times are slower at altitude. It's also the theory behind altitude training is that if you train at altitude, you can get um, an improvement in, it's like stressing another system. So your body gets better at at stealing that oxygen from the blood and using it. Uh, and then if you go back down to sea level, you can, you can use oxygen better. Um, it seems to work very well for some people and less for others, but uh, it that it's not at all it would be expected that the times at mexico city would would be um a lot slower than at sea level mm-hmm. and it would have been it also would have been very difficult in that six weeks to train because um you know it's another stress for the oh, body yeah, training well, at altitude it's a bit demoralizing actually and then yeah. of course then you're living in an environment which is not that particularly enjoyable because things were breaking in mexico the village at mexico was a bit second rate you know, the toilet wouldn't flush and this wouldn't work and this wouldn't work. And after a while, I'm just getting, <laughs> I, was, I was ready for going home, let me tell you. Yeah. And that's why when I'm preparing for a race, I prepare to do it at my own 
I'm my own home. Or if I go somewhere overseas, I like a nice hotel. I don't want to be living in a you know, two-star, three-star hotel um, because, you know, you want to be completely relaxed and be able to get the food that you want and get the sleep that you need, all those sort of things. So, but Mexico certainly wasn't... Uh, so, sorry, um, yeah, Mexico and Munich didn't um, didn't give me the facilities what I I would have would have preferred. And speaking of John Landy, because I've given you a, a little publication there, a, a, a list of athletes, two of the famous people in sports cardiology, Paul Thompson and Barry Marin, put together a list of the first twenty people to run under four minutes for the mile. So Roger Bannister's at the top, and John Landy, and a whole lot of names down that list that you would that you would probably recognise. And the point of that article is that on average, that every one of those first twenty people, uh, on average, lived twelve years longer than than would be expected, suggesting that endurance uh, exercise in you know makes people healthier and live longer. Well, you 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 respect that, wouldn't you? You would expect that. I mean, I'm look. I don't know. I might be a bit different, but I feel very healthy. I'm very fortunate at 77, and uh, going in these figures, that means um, yeah, I can look forward to a long, healthy life. There's a few more years left in me yet, then. <laughs> Hopefully, Andrew. I think you're right that that we would expect that. I mean, it's. Um you know, exercise makes the muscles stronger, the heart stronger, um, reduce heart attacks and reduce the risk of stroke. But as as we were sort of discussing before, there's been um, almost a, a kickback, uh, particularly in the lay press and some articles coming out. Uh, there was one famous one in the New York Times that said, one running shoe in the grave and alluding to the fact that maybe you can do sort of too much exercise. But that's one article, whereas there's, a, there's really a whole lot of articles that quite clearly show that athletes live longer. Um, and I think that's something that's really important to, to sort of come across because it's not always accurately presented no, in the media. That's a very good point. And who was it, the famous South African surgeon who did the first transplant? Bernard? Yeah. He said in his book, which I read years and years ago, he said there's only so many heartbeats in a heart. And if you go and do a lot of exercise, you're you're um, you're running out of heartbeats. You're running out of heartbeats. I actually think that there's something really in that. But what he forgot in that book is that when you're exercising, say you exercise for an hour a day, then your heart rate might be 160 or 170. But for the other 23 hours, your heart rate's a lot lower than the person who doesn't exercise. So over the 24 hours, you actually save heartbeats. Yeah, and and so I think there's something really in his whole idea that you've only got so many heartbeats, but athletes use less of them. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> Paradoxically. Good way of looking at it. <laughs> one of the other things that we did today was reenact this this um, photograph uh, from from the research that you did in in 1970 and then 1991. And one of the things that they showed in, in this, this obviously in the study, they have a, a group of athletes. But my understanding is that your VO2 max hardly changed from that of a 25-year-old to a 45-year-old, which, again, is, is uh, against what we, would under, what we would expect with science because, in general, people lose um, about 1% of their fitness mm, yeah. from, from mid-20s. So... You're, you're, you're a bit of a you're a bit of a sort of 
miracle on a number of levels or a bit okay. of a right. out, outlier. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That is interesting. It would have changed between then and now, wouldn't it? Well, changed dramatically. It, it has in that your, your VO2 max that we measured today was um, a fair bit less than it was you know, as a, as a 20 yeah. and as a 40-year-old. But relative to, to what would be expected for a 77-year-old, your VO2 max was twice that of, of what would be expected. Whereas back then, it wouldn't have been twice what was expected. So It'd be interesting to compare a, a fit athlete, a 77-year-old, because you're comparing me now with Mr. Average, which was probably not true, not totally correct. Yeah. Mm. Um, although uh, Mark Hargraves, a professor from Melbourne Uni, was pulling up a study earlier that did compare you to um, elite oh, did. octogenarians, yeah, and you right. were you were outperforming all of those yeah, as well. Yeah, he did. He showed me that's right. He did tell me that. Mm, that's so, interesting. So whatever metric we pull up, you're you're still a winner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we'll see what happens with my longevity. No yeah. doubt that'll be noted when the, my time comes. Yeah. I'm interested. So you've run this time in Japan. You've had a not so ideal Mexico City, and then where where were you at after Mexico City? Well, Mentally, what what was the goals? Well, then? I was peed off because I wanted to win a gold medal, and I knew at Mexico City it was going to be very difficult. So I was I was aggravated. I was annoyed. Yeah. So that, so that initial drive was even higher. Yeah, well, in some ways, because I looked at Munich and I wasn't that optimistic at Munich because I knew it was going to be hot. There was a very good chance that apparently the, the weather in Munich is very like Melbourne. You can cop a real bad hot day. And, of course, running the marathon at 1 o'clock in the afternoon was always ridiculous, totally ridiculous. And me being big, I've got a high sweat rate, um, I knew I was possibly going to be in trouble there as well. And uh, that's why I retired after me because the next one after that was Montreal. And I did a, a, a thing for Channel 7. Again, it was one o'clock in the afternoon. We went and I fried an egg. I was doing a, a, a series on TV. I went and fried an egg at one o'clock in the afternoon on the, on the actual marathon course. I fried an egg on the, on the road. That's how hot, how, how warm it was. So it's a kind of bit crazy, you know. Um, yeah, so was I down? Yes. But then again, I thought, well, I can let's run another world record, and uh, that's why Antwerp came up. I thought so. I trained for that. That was with the with the one in Fukuoka. That was accidental. I just wanted, as I mentioned, only wanted to go in there and run well. But I thought, damn it, I can run a lot faster than this, a lot, lot faster. So Antwerp came up. There wasn't too many marathon opportunities back in those days. But this one came up in Antwerp. It was going to be run in the evening. I thought, that appeals to me. It's going to be cool. And so off I go to Antwerp. So I had it all worked out. The Ks, everything. Completely different. It was all worked out exactly how fast I was going to run. And uh, which I did. I was on time. I didn't care about anybody else. I went off. I didn't go off on my own. There was probably maybe 10 or 12 of us. But I wasn't interested in what anyone else was doing. I just... Just I was focused, really, really focused, and so yeah, ran the world record, stuck to my schedule, and uh, ran a world record. And when I'd finished that, I thought I can run a lot faster than this again. I thought I could run that run two or eight. I thought I could run two five, two six, and best because I'd already run a marathon in Turkey ten days before that left me a little bit tired because that was at altitude, and to win it I had to beat these two pretty good athletes. 
who are obviously trying to beat me. And to win the thing, I had to run a lot faster, run, I think it was 2.17, which is not a bad time, but I think it was 5,000 altitude, 5,000 feet. And I finished a bit, a bit buggered after that, and I thought, God, I've got this world record attempt coming up in 10 days. Oh, I think I might have heard. But I did it because I wanted to make some money to pay for my, my travel expenses. Because back in those days, it's unlike today, of course. Um, yeah, so that's why I run it. Matter In hindsight, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. And uh, still run a world record, but I often think that I could have run a little bit faster if I hadn't have had that hard marathon 10 days previous. And in that lead-up phase, we're still working. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always worked through my whole career. Yeah. I'd give away studying. I thought I'd give away the going to night school. I think it was all too much, so I gave that away. Yeah, I gave that away. I couldn't. I just couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I was going to end up running myself into a stupor. Mm. And then when did you, when did retirement come about? Uh, I uh, came about. I ran in the Commonwealth Games in um, in New Zealand, and I got injured. I was getting a lot of injuries. And I got injured again. And I went off to Commonwealth Games and uh, did the finish. And I thought, that, that enough's enough. I'm leaving. And then with Montreal coming up, being in a hot country at one o'clock in the afternoon, I thought, I'm not going to continue doing this. I'm not going to continue doing it. I just, I just just got fed up. And I, look, I'd, I had no regrets. A lot of athletes can't retire. When they do they retire, they've got a real problem with it. Um, I didn't enjoy all the hard training. I didn't enjoy that. And I was getting fed up, getting injured and running to the doctors. All my, my life seemed to be consumed by marathon running. And I just quite frankly said, oh, no, I'm going to call quits on this. And uh, just stopped. Never, never, never looked back. Derek's cardiology over this journey. Have you got any insight on how that developed over... This long, uh, solid career. Yeah, so it's interesting because we haven't really touched on it, but since uh, since you retired, you stopped marathon running, but you didn't stop uh, exercising and you got into bike racing. And so there's, you know, 60 years plus or minus of pretty heavy training, uh, lifelong exercise. And as we were doing some of the testing there, I was explaining that things like your um, electrocardiogram, your electrical signal, uh, your resting heart rate is is 35 or or thereabouts. Um, And that is a bit of a reflection on a lifelong of training because the, the heart rate slows down the fitter you are, but also we, we are seeing in our studies that particularly people who have done lifelong exercise, that the, that the heart rate tends to be really, you know, quite low. Um, and similarly, you know, your heart's still uh, big. Um, and one of the differences that we see versus, a, 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 you know, than if you were 18 years of age is that if you stop training, your heart will remain quite big. Um, the, a lot of the flexibility, if you like, if that's the right term of the heart, um, tends to, to go away with the, the years. That's not, a, that's not a bad thing. I mean, you're, a lot of those changes are the things that still make you very fit at the age of 77. But they're, they're, um, they're intriguing things to see. There's not, there's not too many people around that we can study that have done that sort of volume of exercise over a lifetime. 
and in some ways a lot of the testing that we do fit exactly with what we would with what we would expect mm. yeah well, it's nice to get those results and nice to nice to know that i'm not damaging myself doing what i'm doing yeah it's a bit heartening and to know also that i'm not suffering from heart disease or i'm not about to die of a heart attack yeah yeah it's just it's, it's all very interesting stuff all very very interesting any last questions andre um not really just a huge thank you it's uh it's um uh, we've got a little bit more testing to do tomorrow yeah. as part of the research, yeah. but um, thank you for being involved, but also a huge thank you for sharing your story. It's just absolutely intriguing and I think really quite, uh, if nothing else, the, the work ethic is, is um, just really will be an inspiration for a lot of people listening to this podcast, athletes, non-athletes, amateurs, professionals alike. It's really very inspiring. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure to hear and have this little chat and thank you for having me as a... As a guinea pig, it'll be, it'll be interesting to know the outcome and the final results. I'll look forward to it. Brilliant. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. What, what will, just one more thing. What will be the outcome of Derek's testing? What, well, where, so, where will it fit? What will you use it for? So what we're trying to, the, the, the bigger point of the study is that although the overall health of, of, um, of athletes and particularly endurance athletes is excellent, the one little sting in the tail that's coming through is that um, long-term athletic training does seem to be associated with an increase in some heart rhythm problems. And so we're studying a lot of endurance athletes that have been really, you know, the top of Australian sport decades ago and then looking at, at, the, at the heart rhythm and, and, you know, everything that goes with it, their fitness and their heart function. And we are seeing this, you know, increase in, in, in things like atrial fibrillation, much higher than we would see in a, in a non-athletic population. But it's really important. And so the, the research is very much to understand that because through studying athletes, we, we get to help athletes. But also in studying athletes, we start to understand these heart rhythm problems in the general community. It's a really nice little insight. You said before, thank, you know, being a guinea pig, in some ways athletes are the animal model for, for people who do human research because it is such an extreme stimulus, if you like, you know, sort of training really hard, uh, three, four hundred kilometres a week is, is an extreme um, uh intervention on the heart and so we get to see the effects of that and get to understand things better the the point though that i think is really key is that even though we see this signal in in increased heart rhythms and something that i think we can we can understand better and treat better but the whole package is that athletes live live very healthy and and long lives and and i think it's really important that people um don't split it up into its parts and focus on the on the concern when really it's a small part of the bigger equation which is which is really incredible health yeah, it's interesting though that when you think of former athletes as an athlete Kerry O'Brien's his name is a world record holder in the steeplechase same age as me we were pretty friendly good mates he lived in Melbourne for a number of years we trained together and um, he's grossly overweight don't put this on. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, overweight. Now that's not uncommon with a lot of athletes. When I get together with a few old we have in you know, reunions and things, I'm aghast that some of them have put on a, an awful lot of weight. So they're not doing much in the way of exercise. 
Um, I'm not sure if that's possibly a good thing for the heart either. When your heart's been at a very high level and all of a sudden you stop doing any form of exercise, then you're carrying a lot more weight, which puts a strain on the heart. You know, um, people who people who want to put these figures forward about endurance exercise being bad for the heart, they can use those those people as part of their their studies mm. in, in a sense but it's not fair because they've been retired and they've put on all this weight yeah. like you look at AFL footballers when you see some of them today they're awful some of them are just you know they've been pretty fit yeah. and pretty skinny and then they're carrying all this weight so in the study, it's really interesting because we have almost equal amount of people like yourself that have stayed lifelong athletes and then people who have retired and yeah. virtually not picked up a running shoe in anger. Um, so we can compare those two groups. Yeah. The other thing that we forget, though, is in medicine, we always think about things like how long do people live and all. But the thing that motivates people is how they feel today and tomorrow. And the, one of the things is that if, if you, you'll leave here and go walking down the street and play a game of golf and walk upstairs and everything you do, you will be unlimited. Whereas other people who have not done exercise all their life, they'll be short of breath and they'll be you know, having to get the buggy around the golf course and all of these things. And that we often forget quality of life. And, and really, you know, in some ways, we can forget all the statistics and just put it down to as simply as if you, if, I often say use it or lose it. But if you stay active, you feel better. There's no doubt about that. And that's, that's the motivation. I agree with that. Yeah. And the trouble is people get to my age and 80, they start to feel their age. Because they feel, well, look, I'm 80 years of age. I shouldn't be feeling great because I'm old. Yeah. See, my mother lived 101, never had a birthday, and never wanted to discuss 92, 93. And I said, why don't you have a? Why can't we have a birthday for you, Mum? And she said, once you start thinking you're not when you're 93, 94. Once you start thinking you're 93, you're going to start feeling your age. I'm never, I'm, I'm never going to do that. The only birthday she ever had was for her 100th. We had a party for her, and she did enjoy that. But it's interesting, mental thing. Yeah. She'd never accepted the fact that she was growing old and why that should affect her lifestyle. So it's a good way to finish, isn't it? That yeah. analogy about life and not ever thinking about your age and you running the Fukuoka Marathon, never once thinking about the time no. and then doing a miraculous time. That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Move so. forward, be confident. And, mm. Thank, Thank you so very good. much, Derek. Thank yeah. you very much. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks, Andre. I hope that was good for you. Thanks for tuning in to that amazing story of Derek's career. A big thank you to him for sharing his story, for articulating the amazing tales that he has. And if you do did enjoy this podcast, it would be greatly appreciated if you shared it with a friend. Left, left us a review on the iTunes store or followed us on social media. And if you do want the full video as well, the video podcast is on our YouTube, as will all future episodes. Thanks for listening to the podcast.